you West Coast Chapel on this Lord's Day. My name is Ben, and I serve as one of the elders here. Um, Joe, Pastor Joe, was on a well-earned, well-deserved vacation, so I've been asked to fill in this morning. The theme this summer when Joe has been on vacation is to preach out of Revelation. That being the case, I had been praying the rapture would happen at about 8.30 this morning. But since that hasn't happened, I will follow in the steps of the elders that did this before me. Um, I'm going to read the passage, and then I'm going to ask for God's help um, to work through it. Our scripture comes from Revelation 3, 7 through 13. This can be found on page 868 in the Seat Bible. It reads as follows. To the angel in the church in Philadelphia, write these words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, who opens, what he opens no one can shut, and what he shuts no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door no one can shut. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. Him who overcomes, I will, make a, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on him my new name. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Lord Father God, you are perfect and holy. You are our creator and Lord. We want to thank you today for providing all that we have. We especially want to thank you for your son, Jesus Christ, who died for our, our sins, who died in our place, that we might have eternal life. We also come before you and ask for your help in understanding your word. Please give me the strength and the clarity that I need to teach your word this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. There's some background information that I feel might be helpful in understanding the letter that's written here. This is a letter written by Jesus through the Apostle John. At the time this was written, John was in exile as a punishment for following Christ. We see this in Revelation 1.9. It says, I, John, your brother and companion, in the suffering and, and the kingdom and the patient endurance that are ours in Jesus, was on the island of Patmos because of the word of God and the testimony of Jesus. The island is located west of present-day Turkey um, in, the Aegean, in, the Aegean, excuse me, in the Aegean Sea. So, oh great, he's on an island. I can think of some islands I'd like to visit. Aruba, Jamaica. I promise I won't break in the song. Um, but this is not that type of island. This island is void of resorts and spas. There is no motorcycles to rent to take the scenic tour of the island. There is no well-stocked bungalow to sit and relax and enjoy weeks on end. This is not a vacation. This is a punishment. This is where John was sent to die. This is a death sentence. The next question we need to answer is, how do we know this is Jesus speaking? Well, that's easy. My version of the Bible has red letters in it. 
Um, but it's, again, it's much easier to go back to the beginning of Revelation and get the context which is applied here. Starting in chapter 1, verses 13 through 16, John gives a description of Jesus, which we will come back to later. But in verses 17 and 18, we get the answer that we are looking for. It reads, When I saw him, I fell at his feet, though dead. Then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and behold, I am alive forever and ever. I hold the keys to death in Hades. The first and the last, the Alpha and the Omega, Christ is God. He is the living one, the one where all life comes from. He was dead, referring to his death on the cross, where he died for the sins of mankind. And behold, he is alive forever and ever. Again, referring to the resurrection which has happened. Christ holds the death, excuse me, Christ holds the keys to death in Hades. Christ has control over death. Death stops everything and everyone except Christ. This is also one of seven letters that are written in Revelation. Many scholars believe it was written around 95 AD. The letter to Philadelphia was also one of two letters that did not receive correction from Christ. Does anybody here like to be corrected? Um, It's not something I'm fond of. When something is corrected, it's to fix an error or a problem. In this case, neither was present. We should take note of this. By we, I mean all of us, including those who are sleeping in the front row, to actually take notes on this. I will refer back to this so that we can know what this church's secret is, so we can write it down and remember. The area that would be considered Philadelphia is about 390 square miles. To give you a comparison, the Deer River zip code is about 450 square miles. It's not that big of a place, guys. Um, It says, the the city itself was nothing special. It was not coastal. It was not in a major hub for trading. What good can come from Philadelphia? The area of the world was good for agriculture, particularly grapes. But one of the biggest drawbacks, and even to this day, the area is prone to many and major earthquakes. Back in 17 AD, a severe one destroyed the city. People did not even live in the city because it was so bad because the buildings and walls were not stable. You couldn't just go back in and rebuild. Um, Also during the time, Domitian was emperor um, of the Roman Empire. This was during Pax Romana, or the Roman peace, which lasted 200 years. It was already over 100 years into Pax Romana. The truth of the matter is the Romans were at peace due to the fact that they had conquered most of the known world. The greatest empire the world has ever seen up to this point. The most prosperous, well-educated, well-prepared, and well-run empire. Domitian had control of 60 million slaves. Just try and wrap your mind around that number for a second. When one has an empire that vast, they are in control. Your allegiance was to the emperor of who you lived under. Who is Jesus? Jesus is the Christ. He's God's son who was born and died and rose again to conquer death. 
John gives us a description of what Jesus looked like in his resurrected body. Um, in the first chapter, again, verses in Revelation 1, verses 13 through 16, and it reads, And among the lampstands was someone like the Son of Man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet. And with a golden sash around his chest, his head and hair were white like wool, white as snow. His eyes were like blazing fire. His feet were like bronze, glowing in a furnace, and his voice was like the sound of rushing waters. In his right hand he held seven stars, and out of his mouth came a double-edged sword. His face was like the sun, shining in all of its brilliance. That is a pretty awesome description of who is talking here. That is a pretty awesome description of Christ. To give us a better understanding, the sash signifies Christ's leadership and authority. Everybody is subject to Christ's authority. Scripture says every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. The white described in his head and hair are symbols of his purity, sinless, righteous, perfect, and holy. The blazing fire in his eyes are a symbol that he's all-knowing. His gaze, his gaze can pierce all and see all things that are hidden. The bronze feet show strength. Bronze was the toughest known metal at the time, the metal the Romans used to actually conquer and retain the current empire they had. Rushing water to describe Christ's voice. Have any of you ever stood next to Niagara Falls? If you haven't, I would like you to try and imagine this. Imagine you're standing on the edge, the falls is right there. You close your eyes and you're just filled with sheer awe and wonder just by hearing the power of the water. Wow. Now imagine in this same, you know, setting, you're trying to talk to the person next to you. The only way this can be accomplished is by leaning over and literally yelling into their ear. And even then, sometimes what is said is misunderstood. When Christ speaks, he is the only voice that is heard. His voice drowns out all others. His voice makes all others pale in comparison. Out of Christ's mouth comes a double-edged sword. The Roman short sword was possibly the best weapon ever used in hand-to-hand combat at the time. Many swords were longer and only had one sharp edge. Most metals were inferior to the bronze that the Romans used. Because their metal was harder and their sword was smaller, it could hold an edge on both sides and it could move faster, which gave the Roman army a huge advantage. Every movement with a sword was not wasted because both sides were used. Christ's words are not wasted. They have the power to command and defend, to judge and forgive. They have no equal. Christ's face shining like the sun. Have you ever been trying to rest in a dark place and someone flicks light on? Besides being blinded, it gets your attention. Now shift gears. Pretend you're trying to look into the sun. The light that it gives off cannot be looked at directly by our own human eyes. If we ever try to do that and we look away, we still can't see anything, and we still feel like we're staring into the sun. Such a light will grab the intention of anyone. That is the glory of Christ, and that is what is depicted here. So now we have these two opposing forces. We have Domitian, ruler of the Roman Empire, and we have Jesus. The church in Philadelphia, not the bricks and the mortar, but the people have to make a choice. Who am I going to give my allegiance to? Who am I going to stand up for? Who am I going to follow? Remember John, the guy who's writing this letter? 
He was in exile under the same emperor for picking Jesus. Back in chapter 3 and verse 7, Christ is describing himself as he adds holy and true to his accolades we have just previously described. He also states he is the one who holds the key of David, the one um, who is in control of what is opened and what is shut. The key of David is referring to what we would call a master key. In this era, whoever was in charge of a household or a king in charge of a palace would have access to every room, thus also limiting the access of everybody else. David was used because David was the greatest earthly king that Israel ever had. Again, Christ holds the access. He holds the key of David. Christ holds the access to everything and everywhere, including death and Hades, as we read earlier in the first chapter. Jesus is the one who can open doors and shut doors. How often do we try and go through a door that Christ has shut or try to, or not go through a door that Christ has opened? What does Christ know? What does he want? In this passage, there are 11 I statements. They go as follows. I know, I have, I know, I will, I will, I have, I will, I am, I will, I will, I will. Sounds like Christ is really involved in the church in Philadelphia. Let's take a closer look so we can gain a better understanding of what is being said here. I know your deeds. The word used here for knowing is seeing. Christ has his eye on the church. The world would would have you believe that Christ's omniscience, his all-seeing, his all-knowing is a bad thing, such as Big Brother is watching you. It could not be further from the truth. It's a very comforting thought to know that Jesus knows your joys and your sorrows, your successes and your failures. He knows you better than you do. He knows what your best interest is. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. Jesus gives a door. He gives us direction. The way we should go, the way cannot be altered. There's no guesswork. There's no hoping that we're doing what is right. When Christ reveals a direction in our lives, that is the way we should go. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 says, Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and lean not on your own understanding, but in all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your path straight. I know you have little strength. It is okay to be weak. Here is a church that has little strength, yet they have direction from Christ. They have little strength, yet Christ says, I have an open door that I've placed before you. Many times in Scripture, God uses weak things and they succeed, and strong things fail. I'm going to look at two quick examples here. Um, One's going to be from the Old Testament, one's going to be from the New Testament. The first example is going to be Uzziah versus Gideon. Uzziah, in 2 Chronicles 26 Um, 15 through 16a reads, In Jerusalem he made machines designed by skillful men to be used on towers and on corner defenses to shoot arrows and hurl large stones. His fame spread far and wide. He was greatly helped, that's by God, until he became powerful. But after Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. Then there is Gideon. From the least of the tribes and the least in his family, God used him and 300 men to defeat an army whose number was so great, it said you could not count their camels 
any more than you could the sand on the shore. So 300 men versus countless. Uzziah had the best equipment, the best people working for him, and he was famous. He had everything the world desires, and God was helping him. But yet he fell because he started to rely on himself and not on God. When we rely on our own strengths, we tend to forget God. We tend not to pick up our Bible. We tend not to bring things to God in prayer. Gideon was victorious. He was the least of the least. He led a group of unskilled men whose only talents listed were breaking some clay pots, holding small fire sticks, blowing a trumpet, and shouting. Yet because he relied on God, the battle was won and Israel was set free. Little strength wins. The second example is in Mark's gospel where the woman gave two small coins as an offering and this is put in contrast to the wealthy who gave lots of money. The wealthy gave out of their wealth, trusting in their wealth. She gave out of her poverty. This is what Jesus draws attention to. So she is now praised for all time. She was able to give her two cents, and it really mattered. Why did it matter? It doesn't have to do with the actual buying power of her coins. It has to do with where her trust was placed. Just in these two examples, you can look at what little strength can do. The church in Philadelphia had little strength, but here it comes, the part that I recommended we take notes. We are going to reveal the big secret the church in Philadelphia has. I know you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and not denied my name. They kept God's word and they did not deny him. They picked Christ over Domitian. But it goes deeper than that. This is not just a public thing that, that, that when I'm out and all public eyes are on me that, 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 that I'm choosing Christ. There's much more to it. Some people say, well, I've never denied Christ. Well, maybe so. But in Matthew 25, Jesus tells us of another parable, the parable of the sheep and the goats. These people are separated into two groups. The sheep can't seem to remember when they helped Christ, when they fed him, when they closed him, when they visited him, and he was sick. And the goats can't remember seeing Jesus in need of these things. But yet Christ says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers of mine, you did for me. So here's the church in Philadelphia. They are accepting others. They are doing what Christ wants them to do. By ignoring others, we are denying Christ. When we accept others, when we help others, we begin to understand the community that is the body of Christ. We will not deny him, and putting him first will start to come naturally. In verse 9, it says, I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. First off, what is this synagogue of Satan? Is this some new religion I have to be on the lookout for? No, it's just basically saying wolves in sheep's clothing. Christ is going to make these liars fall at the feet of those who follow him. These wolves are forced to acknowledge that those who are living according to God's word are in God's favor. Have you ever wanted to be around and have to see someone admit that they're wrong? 
Well, don't think that way. Leave it up to God. He just said he'd take care of it. In verse 10, Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from an hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole world to test those who live on the earth. As a result of doing what God said, in their little strength, the church has endured patiently, the same as the Apostle John back in the first chapter of verse 9. The church was going to be spared from some sort of massive trial. From the research that I've done on this verse, many biblical scholars believe that this verse is era-specific. While we do not know what the actual trial is, we can take a guess. Again, Rome is in Pax Romana and has dominion over most of the known world. Trajan became emperor in 98 AD, so just a few years after this letter was penned. By 108 AD, under Trajan, thousands of Christians were being slaughtered daily, according to Fox's Book of Martyrs. Was the Church of Philadelphia spared this? We don't know. What we do know is they have already proven They have already been proven with their little strength, enduring patiently, keeping God's word, and not denying his name. Because of this, they did not need to be tested. Here's some food for thought. An area smaller than the zip code of Deer River is going to be spared a test that is going to have an impact on the whole world. That's pretty amazing to think about. God was going to preserve one little small area because they kept his word and they did not deny him. In verse 11, it says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that, you will, um, so that no one will take your crown. Christ wants them to keep on keeping on. No one knows when Christ will return. In Luke 12, Christ um, gives us the parable of watchfulness that we are to be ready for when Christ comes back. The crown that Jesus is referring to in verse 11 is talking about rewards, not salvation. While I don't fully understand how eternal rewards work, I know they exist. In 1 Corinthians 9, 24 through 27, Paul talks about running the race. He's talking about putting forth his best effort. He's not calling his own salvation into question. He wants to do the best job for God. He wants to run the best race for God so that he will not miss out on eternal rewards. Revelation twenty two twelve, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. My rewards are with me, and I will give to everyone according to what he has done. This statement of Christ is made after the final judgment. Again, while I don't fully understand eternal rewards, I know they exist. In verse 12a, Him who overcomes, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will he leave it. Again, keep on keeping on. For those who um, do this, Jesus is going to make them a vital part of the temple of God. Pillars are rooted in the foundation of the building so they can support the structure that is above. Pillars are also very visible and serve an ongoing role. Imagine if God said, I'm going to make you the wall studs. I'm glad he didn't. Pillars are beautiful. They are not just functional, but they also serve aesthetic purposes. To the overcomer is not only going to be a vital part of the temple, but they're never going to have to leave it. Can you think of a better place to be than in the temple of God and in the presence of God? I can't. In verse 12b, it says, I will write the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God, and I will also write on him my new name. Christ is simply stating the overcomer belongs to him. 
he is branded. The first thing I actually thought of when I started to understand this was my mother baking cookies, and she puts them on a plate and brings them out, and there was a mad dash to claim as many as quickly as you can. Even if that means grabbing a cookie, licking it, setting to the side, and repeating until all the cookies are gone. Christ is putting God's name on us, the name of the new city we get to live in, and his new name. All that is being attached to us. That's like licking the cookie, taking a bite out of the cookie, and putting the cookie in the container with your name on it. There is no question who this belongs to. This overcomer belongs to God. This overcomer belongs to Christ. There is great comfort in knowing you belong to Christ. Finally, in verse 13, it says, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Simply put, this is for everyone to pay attention. Why does this matter to me? Very short application. On one side, I have this long list of I statements of what Christ is doing or what Christ has promised to do. And on this other side, I have what I have to do, which is keep God's word and not deny him. This is what the church in Philadelphia did. My benediction is short and simple. Be like the church in Philadelphia. Let's pray. Lord, Father God, we we thank you for your word. And we pray that we would keep it. We pray that you would help us put you first in all that we do. And that we would not deny your name. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.